in 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going to read the entire chapter, even though our focus this morning will be on verses 8 through 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. I used to think like a child, reason like a child. And when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three but the greatest of these is love let's pray loving father we we thank you for this marvelous chapter and as we as we come to the last part of it lord we pray that uh, that it would be uh, front and center in our minds and our hearts uh, all the all the days that remain to us lord this this is uh absolutely foundational it's bedrock to your call upon us upon our lives your love in us your love given to us and uh, overflowing through us to others is at the very center of our reason for being here lord so we pray that you would uh, you would you'd pierce our hearts with these marvelous truths and you would make us to walk in love and we ask it in jesus precious name amen this morning uh, we wrap up our our time in chapter 13 in first corinthians and personally after spending the last several weeks in this chapter i find it hard to think of finishing it and moving on <laughs> uh, but of course the chapter is not going anywhere we know where to find it and uh, as i've said to to many Christian couples in the context of, uh, of premarital and in marriage counseling. Um, this is a chapter that they would do well to come back and read together on a regular basis. And each time they read it, to go to God and acknowledge to God something that it tells them about the nature of, of godly love. That would be true for every one of us. At the end of this chapter, 
Paul brings us to the inevitable conclusion that love surpasses every other work that, that God accomplishes in and through his beloved children. Love is greater than all spiritual gifts that equip and build up the church for the work of ministry. Love is greater than faith. Love is greater than hope. Love is greater than knowledge. Love is the first and preeminent fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is the outworking of God's presence in us that is the highest of all virtues and it is the clearest mark of our union with Jesus Christ. Of all of the attributes of godliness that we should desire to see God work into our thinking and our speech and our actions, the greatest of these is love. Paul begins verse 8 by saying, love never fails. And then in the rest of verses 8 through 12, he contrasts the never failing nature of godly love with the temporary and partial nature of other gifts that God has given to us here and now. Both spiritual gifts and gifts, uh, just gifts that have to do with God working his character into us. He does so to drive home the point that love, love is the greatest pursuit of every child of God. And we'll talk in a little while about what that means to pursue love. Because of what Paul says about, about the other things that he talks about here, some translators render love never fails as love never ends, because there's a lot of talk of things passing away in this passage. But as we'll see, there is, uh, there is more to the never failing quality of love than just permanence. In verse 10, Paul says, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And then that phrase done away comes up multiple times leading up to that. The perfect state of affairs that Paul anticipates in verse 10 is the same finishing out of God's marvelous plan of redemption that Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. He calls it the fullness of the times, the summing up of all things in Christ. I love how Randy Alcorn handles that verse in the book Heaven. He says that a good rendering of that phrase is the gathering together into one head of all things, the things in the heavens and the things on earth, all made one. Paul's point here is that here in Corinthians is that when Jesus returns to claim his bride and to utterly do away with sin and the curse of sin, every partial and temporary thing will also be done away. All that will remain will be eternal. The temporary things that Paul contrasts with love in verses 8 through 12 are not evil things. They're not bad or cursed things. In fact, they include some of the gracious spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to, to each believer that he, that he distributes differentially to each believer. Gifts like prophecy and tongues, words of knowledge. But Paul declares love to be superior to every gift of the Spirit. And he gives us two reasons, two bases for that declaration. The spiritual gifts, even the greatest of them, are temporary. And secondly, the spiritual gifts, even the greatest of them, 
are incomplete. They're partial. The gift of prophecy does not make the bearer of that gift able to foretell or foretell everything that God has had to say to man. Once God has brought us into his dwelling place, into his presence in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll have no need of the gift of prophecy. We'll be able to sit at the feet of, of our great God and Savior and we'll be able to receive what he has to say to us with no impediment of sin, no resistance in our own, in our own habit. Uh, we'll have open ears and open eyes that see and hear marvelously. Gifts of tongues do not make the bearers of the gifts able to communicate unhindered with either men or angels or God. That's the Holy Spirit's work, that communication with God. Indeed, as Paul's going to make clear in the very next chapter, unless there's someone to interpret what is spoken in, a, in an unknown tongue, even the person speaking doesn't get to know what he's talking about. And the church is not edified. Once God has brought us into his eternal dwelling place, the new heavens and the new earth, we'll have no need of the spiritual gift of tongues. The curse that confused the languages of men in the first place was God's idea back at Babel. And that curse will be behind us, along with every other curse. Our fellowship and our communication with one another and with angels and with God himself will be unhindered. Our knowledge, no matter how exhaustive it may be, this side of glory, whether it's special words of knowledge that are, that are gifts of the Spirit, or whether it's the knowledge of the Word of God that's made available to every child of God by the, the author of that Word, the Holy Spirit who is in us, the knowledge that we now have pales in comparison with the fullness of intimate, personal knowledge of God, of the truth, and of one another that will be ours when we stand in the presence of, of our great God. Jeremiah 31, 34 says of that beautiful day, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So there are many, there are many gifts. Paul's just giving us a sampling. There are many blessings that have come from the hand of God to us during the time in our mortal bodies that are temporary. They're partial. They're not, they're not perfect. But beloved, there is one perfect, unchanging, eternally enduring attribute of God that you and I who belong to Christ already possess in these mortal vessels right now. And that attribute of God is agape. It is the love of God given to us and overflowing from us to others. What makes it perfect is not that we perfectly live it out. The New Testament is filled with commands to the people of God to love well, which means that we don't always do that, right? To love as we've been loved by God in Christ. And, and the New Testament contains many rebukes 
against the church of God because, <laughs> because we don't carry out that command so well. But, but here's the deal, guys. What makes the love of God perfect in us is that it's His love and not ours. It doesn't come from us. Just like the righteousness of Christ that clothes us and qualifies us for heaven, for the presence of our perfectly holy God, the love of God in us has no limits and it has no end. That's because it is inextricably bound up in the very presence of God in us in the person of the Holy Spirit who himself has no limits and no end. 1 John 4.16 says, God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. In Romans 5, verse 5, Paul says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Remember this morning we talked about it's not an event, it's a person. All of this is about, is about union with Jesus Christ. The person and about the Spirit of God given to us, dwelling in us. <laughs> in, there in Romans 5, 5, we need to notice, Paul does not say the love of God is being poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is being given to us. It's not what he says. He says the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Spirit who was given to us. It's accomplished, right? Past tense. The word for poured out is the same word Jesus uses in Matthew 9 of wine bursting from old wineskins that rupture. It's not a dribble. It's a flood. The King James Version puts Romans 5, 5 really well. It says the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. I love that, that wording through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. That shedding abroad is accomplished. We're not waiting for it. God's love has been made our nature through the indwelling Holy Spirit whose love it is. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, uh, in that passage, Paul gives us a list of things that exist in this cursed creation that cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. How? through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. God has brought that marvelous promise to my mind and heart countless times since he brought me to faith in his son as a young man. I'm not a young man anymore. That was a while ago. But I realized just in the last couple of weeks that there is 
there is a critical facet of that promise that I've never rightly acknowledged. Not only can no created thing ever separate me from the love of God that has been given to me in my union with Christ, no created thing can ever separate me from the love of God that is given through me to others through my union with Christ. It's not two different loves. It's one. It is the steadfast, covenant-keeping love of God lavished upon all who trust in Jesus to overflowing. So it doesn't stay here. It overflows and it goes out to others. The, the love of God is by, by nature extensive. It always goes further and further and further. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, you and I do not manifest or live out that love of God any more perfectly than we do that righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to us. But both those gifts from God are perfect. They are unchanging. They are unbreakable. They are eternal and they are immeasurable. When I withhold his love from others, when I refuse to act on it, something I've noticed over the years is that it's painful. Maybe painful to somebody else, but it's painful to me when I withhold the love that God has poured out in my heart. Why? Well, in part because I'm denying my own God-created nature. It hurts when you do that. It might protect my schedule, might reduce the hassle factor in any given day, but it denies the nature of Christ in me. Withholding from others the love that God has poured out upon you leads to purposelessness, depression, and despair. It hurts to deny our nature because it's supposed to hurt. When I act on the love that God has poured out to overflowing in me, everything fits. When I don't act on that love, nothing fits. When I allow my plans, my schedule, my financial security, that's called an oxymoron, financial security, my political agenda, my reputation, my comfort, my love for being right, or anything else to keep me from pouring out the overflowing love of God to those that he puts in my path, I'm like a fish pulled out of water and told to keep breathing. Nothing fits. If you are a benched Christian, if you're sitting on the sidelines because you don't believe that God can love other people through you, the one you are questioning is not you, it's God. In verse 11, Paul says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child. I used to think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. His contrast here between the childish and the mature is actually not a call to grow up. I thought it was and kept looking and realized, no, that's not what he's saying. There are other passages that present the command to us to leave behind the ABCs of, of religious behavior, childish rule keeping, and, and to 
move on to grace and maturity, including Colossians chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 5. But, but that's not Paul's point here. What he's saying here is he's giving us a call to recognize that there are some childish things that we cannot move beyond just yet. We're kind of stuck in them. For a time, we are stuck with immature and temporary forms of certain things. And he make, that becomes very clear in verse 12 when Paul gives us two contrasts between now and then. Now and then. He says, for now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. See, he's continuing with the same point that he made in verses 8 through 10. Here and now, for a little while longer, we live in the realm of the partial, the temporary, the unfinished. Now, and for a little while longer, our spiritual sight isn't so great. It's compromised. It's hindered by sin. It's hindered by the curse. The word that's translated dimly or darkly in verse 12, now we see as through a mirror dimly or darkly, that, that word is from the Greek word that, is, that made its way into English in the form of the word enigma, enigma. It's as if we're looking at something beautiful, but we're seeing it through either a reflection in a, in a warped mirror or in a distorted piece of glass, looking through a distorted piece of glass. And so that the real form of the thing that we're looking at is it's kind of, it's kind of a mystery. We don't quite get it. Paul says, now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully no, it gives us something to look forward to. <laughs> that harkens back to uh, the beginning of chapter 8 where Paul said, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. It's, it's really good, isn't it? Whatever you, whatever you know, whatever you think you know, it's not good enough. And then he says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. That's what, we should, that's what we should find desirable. That's what we have to celebrate. The only perfect, intimate knowledge, perfect, intimate knowledge that exists between God and men is God's knowledge of us, not our knowledge of Him. Ours keeps growing, this side of glory. Certainly should. It's marvelous what we do, what we do know of God is marvelous. It's life transforming, it's life defining but it's just the tip of the iceberg. Psalm 139, David declared that God's knowledge of him was too wonderful for him, for David. David was keenly aware that God knew him not only better than David knew God, but better than David knew David. But beloved, the day is coming when we will know fully just as we have been fully known. That doesn't mean we'll ever get our hands around God and know everything there is to know about God. But it does mean, it does mean that the intimate, personal knowledge of God that awaits us when we enter into His presence will make what we, what we know of Him now look like child's play. I can't wait for that. We cannot yet move on from childless things, but we soon will. And here's the deal. Because God has told us what's coming, 
we know what we must value now. We must value most highly that which is not temporary, not partial, not corrupted by sin and the curse. And that most valuable attribute of God that already belongs to every child of God is the love of God. His love for us and his love overflowing from us to him and to others. Verse 13 is is extraordinary. But now faith, hope, love abide. But the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love are the three attributes of godliness by which Paul assesses the spiritual health of the churches that he's writing to. At the beginning of Ephesians, at the beginning of Colossians, at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, Faith, hope, and love are the things that he speaks of in his commendations to the churches. They don't all have all three. In some cases, they have one or two, and they're maybe working on the others. But those are the three things that he keeps talking about. Those are the three things that he desires to see in these churches. Faith, hope, and love. Now, in the concluding verse of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul declares that of these three great attributes of godliness, the greatest, the greatest is love. In verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 13, you remember he said, love believes all things, and then he said, love hopes all things. In that statement, love is the subject, love is the active agent, faith and hope are what love does. Even in Paul's declaration in verse 12 that faith, hope, and love abide or remain, that declaration is more fully true of love than it is of the other two things, right? By God's grace, our faith and our hope will endure until we draw our last breath in these mortal bodies but they will endure only until the perfect object of our faith and hope is standing right in front of us. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Romans 8 verses 24 and 25 says, For hope in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. See, faith and hope are both forward-looking. They're waiting for something. And they both have a finish line. Faith and hope both have a finish line. The day is soon coming when the things that are not seen will be seen very clearly. Our faith will be sight. And the hope of our calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints will be our daily, continual, eternal experience. Faith and hope have a finish line, but the love of God does not come with a finish line. When you and I finally see our beautiful Savior as he truly is and are made like him, His love in us and our love for Him 
and for one another won't be finished. <laughs> It'll be kind of just getting started, right? It's the beginning of, a, of an eternal line. God created and he recreated us to be the eternal objects of his love. I believe the first two words in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, belong in 1 Corinthians 13. And I know a lot of people will argue with me about that. That's fine. But you know the chapter divisions are not inspired, right? The first two words of 1 Corinthians 14, 1 are pursue love. And then he says, but desire earnestly greater gifts that the gift of prophecy is the one he specifically points out but that word but that word it, it also means now and it is often used as the starting verse in many chapters okay Paul just said faith hope love abide the greatest of these is love and the next thing he says is pursue love he, I believe he's simply saying your top priority guys is love He's saying, make that which is the greatest attribute of godliness, the greatest goal of your thoughts, your words, your prayers, your actions. Let that which most surely identifies you as a disciple of Christ also be the measure of all that you do and say. When you and I are deciding what to do and what to say about any issue affecting ourselves, or affecting the people that we love, or affecting our country, or the world. What is the overriding priority that must determine what we say and what we do? Whether the question at hand is, should I wear a mask? Or should my church require me to wear a mask? Or should I get vaccinated? Or should I post certain comments on Facebook? Or should I engage in a particular argument? Or whatever else it is that you're considering saying or doing, if that which determines your words and your actions is the priority of keeping Big Brother at bay, you've missed the mark of godly love. If that which determines your words and actions is the priority of holding fast to your supposedly unalienable God-given right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you've missed the mark of godly love. And by the way, God never promised those things to anybody. Except the life part, and that's only in Jesus Christ. If that which determines your words and actions is the priority of preserving the cultural acceptability of Christian beliefs and practices in the culture, you've missed the mark of godly love. If that which determines your words and actions is the priority of protecting yourself and those you love from some temporary harm, including physical death, you've missed the mark of godly love. If that which determines your words and your actions is the priority of drawing boundaries in the right place to structure out any possibility that people will treat you too badly, you've missed the mark of godly love. Praise God that Jesus didn't do that when it came to how you treated him and how I treated him. If he had ever drawn boundaries and said, that's too much, I'd be everlasting toast. If that which determines your words and your actions is the priority of sacrificial, self-denying, unwavering, 
Christ manifesting God-sourced love for others, especially for your fellow heirs of the grace of life in Jesus Christ, then you have hit the mark. You've hit the mark of godly love. But I'll say one more time, beloved, it will not be your resolve to love that way that gets the job done. The only way that we'll get this right is if we come humbly and continually to the source of godly love. Our love, even when it's rightly informed, fails when it's our love and not his love. His love never fails. It never ends. It's never partial. Paul commands us to pursue love, but how do we do that? What does it mean to pursue love? How do we, how do we pursue love if the love, love that he's talking about doesn't come from us? Well, I think precisely because it doesn't come from us, the first thing that we must do is be sure that we are getting to know the lover of our souls better all the time. He has revealed himself to you and to me through his written word and through his incarnate word. Both are living and active. You cannot know God if you never behold him, if you never listen to him, if you never talk to him, if you never consciously agree with him about himself and about you. Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21, listen to this, this is great. If the question is, <laughs> if the question is, how do we get filled up to all the fullness of God so that we overflow? Listen, listen to the answer. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Step one is know the love of God. Know the God of love. Get to know the one who, who knows you perfectly and loves you anyway. Enough that he sent his own beloved son to die in your place to make you his own. Abide in God's word. It's part of this knowing the love of God. Abide in God's word. Come to the word of the Lord to meet the Lord of the word. Sit at the feet of Jesus daily, continually, and get to know him. That's the first part of our assignment to pursue love. Here's the second part. Love others as Christ has loved you. You might be thinking, well, that sounds like just do it. And Tom, you've been saying all along that we can't love the way God requires and commands us to love by, by just resolving to do it. It has to be Christ in us doing the loving. And that's, that's correct. Yesterday, the Holy Spirit helped me understand something about the words of Jesus to his beloved disciples the night before he died for them uh, that are recorded in John 15, something uh, that I had not seen the same way ever before. 
John 15, starting in verse 9, Jesus said to his disciples, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Does that sound like something that hasn't been accomplished? It's done. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. And then he says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. I've always wrestled with that paragraph because I didn't quite understand how verse 10 works in light of verse 9. How can keeping Christ's commandments be required in order for me to remain in his love if he already made me the eternal object of his love? And by the way, it doesn't make my joy full to think that if I don't love others as he loved me, I won't remain in his love. But I realized I was misunderstanding what's going on here. This isn't a warning, beloved. This is a promise. This is a promise by Jesus to his beloved disciples who would carry the mantle of seeking and saving the lost when he ascended to his father. And the night before he died for them, he gave them this promise. The best explanation I've ever heard of the word abide is that it means to pitch your tent and stay. It's related to the word for tabernacle, okay? To pitch your tent and stay. Jesus told his beloved disciples that the way they would pitch their tent in his love for them, the way that they would make his love their constant dwelling place would be by loving each other just as he had loved them. He wasn't telling them how to avoid losing his love. He was telling them how to camp out in the perfect love that they could never lose. You with me? This goes back to what I said earlier about God's perfect promise in Romans 8, that no created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That promise applies both to God's love for us and to God's love for others through us. It's not two loves, it's one love. Extended from the triune God to his children, overflowing through us back to him and to others. The way we pitch our tent in that amazing love is by being imitators of Christ, by loving others as we have been loved by him. With his love that's perfect, that's already poured out in our hearts. It's already ours. It's just chomping at the bit to get out. As we do so, whatever imperfections that we bring to the table, and they are many, the love of God in us is still perfect. It's not our greatness that makes us eternally useful. It's his greatness in us. It is not our love that we get to pour out upon others. It's his love in us. The only way that you and I get to see that love in action is not, just, is not by knowing about it, 
the way that we dwell right in the midst of that love is by doing what he commanded, by loving others as he has loved us. In his power. Galatians 2.20, verses, I think God gives it, reminds me of this one every day of my life. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. How do I live the Christian life? By trusting him, by depending on him, by looking to him, the author and perfecter of faith, and to nobody and nothing else. We confuse dependence with inability. Of course we're unable to love others as Christ has loved us. That's back page news. If the love comes from us, we're not going to get anywhere with this. When Satan tells you that you're lousy at loving, you should agree with him. But the rest of the story is that Christ in you is perfect at loving. He is perfectly able to love others through you and me. What does that mean for how we live? It means that every single thing we do, we do in prayerful, absolute dependence on Christ in us. People who are utterly dependent on God pray a lot. But it also means, beloved, that we put both feet into doing what God has commanded us to do. And the very essence of what He has commanded us to do as His children is to love others as He has loved us. To love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Satan loves to sideline us with half-truths. So he says, yeah, you're so utterly dependent on God that unless he picks you up off that log you're sitting on like a bump and makes you do good things, you'll never be useful for anything. So read your Bible and pray, but don't do anything very demanding unless you want to be guilty of walking by the flesh. But Jesus says, if you act on my commandment to love others as I have loved you, you will dwell right in the midst of my love for you and of my love for others through you. You will go, same chapter, you will go and you will bear fruit and your fruit will remain because that's why I chose you. I will do it. That's what Jesus says. If you and I want to be astonished at what God accomplishes through the miserable likes of us, then we must make Him the measure of our usefulness and never us. In Ephesians 1.3, Paul says to every child of God, we have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So what do we lack? Nothing. A little later in the same chapter, he says that the power that God has made to dwell within us is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him far above all rule and authority and power and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Do we have enough power to do what God has given us to do? Absolutely. That doesn't mean we're not dependent. It just means we know we know the source. We know where to go. 
We are dependent on Christ in us, but he is all the ability that we will ever need to be miraculously, eternally useful as lovers of God and lovers of men. Agape is God-sourced love. So beloved, get in the trenches of life with real people in circumstances that take you so far beyond your comfort level, so far beyond any natural ability that you have, that you have nowhere else to look except to the source of love, Christ in you. Ask and trust him to love other people through you miraculously, and then be astonished at what he does. That's how you and I will pitch our tent and remain in His amazing love every day of our lives. Dear Father, we ask that You would make the perfect love that You have poured out in our hearts to overflowing, overflow. We ask this in Jesus' incomparable name. Amen.